Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Go ahead and be seated. And hopefully you've got Lesson 3 material. There's also Lesson 4 out there for those of you overachievers who want to read ahead and decide if you're going to come. Uh, that material's out there, so you can assess uh, next Wednesday night your availability. Had a few of you uh, email me, and you can find my email address. Just go to our, our webpage, hit staff, and there's an unfortunate picture of me, which they all are. Click that, and it'll give you my email address. And if you need this material, if you miss a week, uh, it's also being podcasted if you're unaware so you can go to iTunes and just type in Christ Church of Orinoco and it will take you to our specific uh, podcast link and you can download any of the Sunday morning or the main Wednesday night teaching. That's available to you. You can also go to, uh, help me Brad, ccochurch.com uh, slash classes. And uh, a link has been made more apparent than it was previous. So you can uh, uh, check that out as well. If you miss a week, life happens, or if you just want to keep tracking, uh, that's what we're going to make available to you. Let me have a word of prayer. First thing, I just want to thank God for giving us spring in January and knock on fake wood. It looks like it's possibly going to snow Sunday, which would be February 1st, so we got a free month, and for that I'm grateful. Uh, Let's pray. God, thank you for the day we have. Thank you for the beautiful weather, Uh, just from the break from uh, the cold and the gray. Thank you for the sunshine and the way that you take care of us. Uh, God, I think about it often, even if it were raining and cold and just a miserable outside you're still so good to us that we just begin our time together by thanking you for our health that we can be here uh thank you for our job opportunities that we had to been able to serve today and we pray that we've served to your glory Uh, bless those that couldn't make it because they don't feel well or they had things happen that just took them off track Uh, just pray that your presence will be with them and encourage their hearts Uh, as we study about your son and we look at what the new testament teaches us god open all of our minds and hearts to new ideas and concepts that you want to say I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a little pop quiz. Just two or three of you. I'm going to ask you the question, how many books are in your Bible? Talk to each other. Okay, are you just going to talk to me? All right, we'll do it that way. 66. How many authors wrote those 66 books? 40 authors. Covers how much time in history? 1,500-year period of time, fact of history. So those are, this is what your Bible is breaking down. Okay, how many books are in your New Testament? Ah, less confident about that one. (laughs) 27, question mark? Yeah, 27 books. Okay, covers the period of what? It's not a blank. You're all going, I didn't write that down. Yeah, so it covers a period of time roughly written between about 40 AD to the period of about 90 AD, a 50-year period of time, those 27 books and letters were produced. I want you to keep perspective of that because uh, in week one we talked about what makes up your Bible and then last week we talked about some introductory material and who are the key characters and, and what I wanted you to draw from this. Today we're going to talk about something that my fear is, and this happens to me on Sunday mornings, even last Sunday's message was geared toward this. It's a story you're familiar enough with that you stop and say, remember we talked about this, you say to yourself, oh I know that story. But you really take the joy of it away. There are several movies that I've watched in my lifetime. Now, anytime a preacher mentions movies, it's like it's been sanctioned by the church. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I've, I've lived in sin too. But there was a movie that I watched when I was in college. It was called The Fisher King. It was a, book, it was a movie with Robin Williams in it. He's, he's just another one of his weird characters. But it's a fascinating 
story about spiritual connection. And I remember watching it, and I thought it was funny and quirky, and I quoted some of the lines like guys are apt to do, and one of the professors said to me, have you seen The Fisher King? And I said, yeah. And he said, no, have you really seen it? And I said, I don't think I have. And he said, let's go to the theater. So we went to the theater, and I sat with George Brown. And in the middle of the movie, he said, did you notice the camera angle on the opening shot? And it's a guy in a bathtub with everything submerged but his head. And he's practicing lines for his next film. And his line is, forgive me. And he's practicing the different ways you can say it. And he's submerged in water. And the camera view is from top looking down on him. And he gets the line right. And he says, forgive me. And he submerges himself underwater. And George looked at me and he goes, I bet you didn't see that. And I didn't. And when I watched the movie with someone who was trained to pick these things up, it was an amazing movie. I've probably watched The Fisher King 15 times in my lifetime since that moment. And every time if I pay attention, there's something being said that I missed the first time. Does that make sense? So when we talk about Jesus tonight, stop yourself from saying, I knew that. And start saying, did I really? And if this is true, what difference does it make? Now I've got you set up. So you can't help but find me interesting, and that was my ultimate goal anyway, right? No. It's I want you to understand that when we're going to talk about the life of Christ in Lesson 3, we're going to focus on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let's do a little bit of background. What is gospel? Good news. We talked about this two weeks ago. This will break my heart if nobody remembers it. What kind of good news is it? Life-changing, thank you. It wasn't just good news like somebody won a ball game tonight. It was good news that a victory had been won. The word gospel was saved for major warfare. A new king had been put in place to dethrone an old king. Freedom was established to people enslaved. All four of these books that we're going to talk about tonight, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are about one man, and all of them proclaim good news to a specific audience with a specific angle. So let me document that for you. Matthew. Matthew shaped his account for the Jewish Uh, reader. He wrote to the Jews. The terminology Matthew uses is distinct, intentional, purposeful. He's writing to the Jewish sensibility. And we're going to talk about him in a few moments. And why he wrote that way is fascinating. It's a character study and it's, it's, it's awesome. Mark. Mark wrote to the Romans primarily. He was writing to the people in power at 40 A.D., when he was establishing who Jesus was and what he'd done. Okay? So he's writing to the Romans. Now, Luke shaped his account for the Greeks. We know that, and we'll talk about it in a moment. He writes to a a man or a group of people he called Theophilus, or lovers of God. They were not Jews, and it was in the time of the book of Acts, and he was writing to them to establish why the church was doing what it was doing. So his audience was very specific. It was to those not raised with the Jewish background who would not understood all the kingdom language that Matthew used. And then John, John emphasizes Christ's deity. The fact that he's God. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing very intentionally, and they're called synoptic gospels. That's a term that you'll hear sometimes from the stage or you'll be hearing a podcaster reading a book and they'll talk about the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and it's not John. Now what makes something synoptic is they're talking chronologically. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke write, not totally, 
but almost totally, they're writing in the order things happen. Sometimes Matthew will put something ahead of another thing to explain it. When I was growing up, my dad had all the Bill Cosby albums, and we used to sit around listening to those and just roaring. My dad's got a big, huge laugh, so when my dad would fall apart, we would all giggle at him. But I remember Bill Cosby used to always tell a story, and when he was done, he would say, I told you that story so I can tell you this one. He had established all the funny characters, so when he told the story of Fat Albert, you got it. Sometimes Matthew takes out of chronology certain moments in Jesus' life because he's wanting us to see this is going to happen, and it'll only make sense when you see what, what preceded it, okay? So, John is writing to a different audience. Because there are so many stories of Jesus out there, John is writing to show that he was God. That's why when you read John's story, there's very little birth narrative. There's 14 verses about where he was before he was born, and then John brings you right into his ministry, and two-thirds of John is about the final week. So it's a distinct book. I've often been asked, and I've heard preachers answer this question a little bit differently. They'll say, if someone doesn't know anything about Jesus, where would you have them read? And a lot of people say, John. I find John one of the most confusing of the four Gospels. I would often recommend that you have someone read Luke and Acts and start there so they understand context and then jump back and do Matthew and Mark. But you can do it however you, you want to. But John is more a book about deity and until you understand what Jesus did, most of us can't understand where he came from. So let's talk about Matthew. And there's some blanks in there just so you have a perspective on this particular book. Now remember where we started a couple weeks ago. What I'm hoping you're able to do is when you start reading a book or passage of scripture from your Bible in your personal Bible time, I hope that you can pull this folder out and open it and say, okay, I'm going to start in Matthew. Here's what we talked about in Matthew. Here's some notes. I want to read this and be ready for it so Matthew makes sense to me. It's a cheater. I know none of you were, none of you did cliff notes when you were going through school, but one of us did, and cliff notes were very helpful. A senior told me when I was a freshman, buy the cliff note, read the cliff notes, and then read the book, and the book will come to life. And they were right. If you just read one, you missed the best part. But when you read one that told you where it's coming, then off you went. So here's the cliff note here. Matthew, it's about good news for the Jews. It was an account of Jesus' life, pure and simple. An account of Jesus' life. Where did it take place? In the Holy Land. Now, if I get happy and outrun you, just wave your hand and I'll, I'll back up. And it was written somewhere around 60 AD. I can pull up uh, study references in my Bible software and I can get arguments from 60, 62, 64, 65. So we're just going to put in the early 60s. Okay, who was Matthew? Without looking at your notes, what do you know about Matthew? He was a tax collector. He was a Jew. He was a man and he was a disciple. All of those factors are very important. We can eliminate the man, not that important. A Jew, important. A tax collector, intriguingly important. A disciple, surprisingly important. Let me explain. A tax collector worked for which government? The Roman government. So for a Jew to work for the oppressor was betrayal. Did you notice that one of the most common criticisms of Jesus is he ate with, pay attention to the terms, tax collectors and sinners. There was a special breed of sinner to the Jew, and it was the person who worked for the oppressing government. Because here's what would happen. If I were a tax collector, Rome would say, 
that I can go, I'll go back to Jeremy and Teresa back there, and I, they say to me that Jeremy and Teresa owe the Roman government $10,000. But I arrive at their palace, and I say to them, you owe $25,000, and there's nothing you can do about it. And Rome says, you charge them twenty-five, huh? Just give me my ten. Good for you. And off they went. And when a new Caesar came in, do you know what happened to all the tax collectors who worked under the old Caesar? They were gotten rid of, maybe by even execution, because their loyalty wasn't to the new guy, it was to the old guy. So as a tax collector, would you be uh, enticed to collect as much as you could, as quickly as you could, in case there was a change in power? And who was Matthew collecting the taxes from? Romans? Oh, no, 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 no. A Roman would not pay a Jew their taxes. So who was being taxed by this Jewish? Jews. So when Jesus invites Matthew to become a disciple, do you think that might be an irritant? Is it conceivable that Matthew collected money that they didn't really owe, but to save their lives they paid it? Is it possible that some of the disciples may have been uh, taken by Matthew? Now, let's see if you've really been paying attention. Matthew writes about kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of God. Nobody uses more kingdom terminology than Matthew does, which is pretty ironic for someone who's pledged their loyalty to another kingdom. Do you think it might make a difference when Matthew writes about the kingdom that he understands what it is to enter into a real kingdom after having been immersed into a false one? So when you read Matthew, always remember the guy writing it, he's been there, done that. And now he's celebrating his chance to come back in the new kingdom. Because the number one criticism, prostitutes got a better view by the Jews than tax collectors did. Because all the Romans did was go pick a bunch of Jews that would roll over on their friends and say, you're going to collect money and you get to keep whatever you want. And that's just the way it worked. So because he'd betrayed one kingdom, the, the new kingdom is very interesting to him. So what's special about Matthew's gospel? It's the kingdom language, the messianic promise of a new kingdom. Okay? So, three things. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew goes into greater detail than Luke does. Now, there's debate, and I'm going to give you my opinion on it. You didn't ask, but what the heck. There's debate as to whether or not the Sermon on the Mount happened one time or whether it was Jesus' traveling sermon. Okay. Now, you don't care, but I tell my stories anyway. Uh, I have one sermon I've preached 19 times in 28 years. When I was traveling for the Bible college and they would ask me to go speak, every time you'd call these churches and they'd say, hey, we, you're, our preacher's on vacation, would you send someone over to preach? And the president would say, hey, Mark, would you go to this church and preach? And I'd be, yeah, okay, uh, I'll work that out. And you'd always say to the church, what do you want me to preach? Are you in a series? What are you guys talking about? And do you know what they always told you? Almost all the time? Just bring whatever you want to bring. Just bring your favorite. Well, I had one of those. And so 19 times in 28 years, I've preached that sermon. So I look in my files, and every time that's listed, it's got a number next to it, 17, 18, 19. I have a traveling sermon. And if I get one shot at an audience, I decided a long time ago, if you don't know them and they don't know you, instead of worrying about credibility and what strong things you say, preach about the love of Christ. I don't need permission to preach about the love of Christ. And I've never had an audience say, we're tired of hearing about that. So I have a traveling sermon. I believe the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' traveling sermon. So Matthew records it in great depth, and Luke gives us a shadow version of it, but I don't think Luke was shortening it. 
I think Luke was recording the gist of this message that wherever Jesus went, he preached this new kingdom. And he called people to himself. Matthew chapter 11 through 13 is Jesus' parables of the kingdom. These are the stories that Jesus told that he remembered about being a part of this new work, about this new opportunity, about this grace that Christ was offering. And then your third little doubt there is Jesus teaching about the future, the prophetic Matthew 24 and 25, which is controversial in our age today. Was it talking just about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD or was it talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the end of all time? And I know in this room there's different understandings and appreciations for that. But those are the three. Now, the other passages aren't insignificant, but we're talking about the distinctions in Matthew's gospel from the others. Let's go on to the Gospel of Mark, and we'll take less time on that because if you paid attention for three weeks, you probably know where we're going with this. Okay? Who wrote it? John Mark. We didn't talk about much of this in the introduction. John Mark is noted as Mark here because there's like 108 Johns in the New Testament. So to be able to separate those out, he's often known as Mark. There are some things that scholars believe about John Mark that are interesting. First of all, they believe that the house, when Jesus said, hey, go into town and there'll be a donkey tied outside, it'll be a young donkey, you just go take that when they say, why are you taking our donkey? Just say the master asked for it and they'll be aware of that. Most people, most scholars believe that that was John Mark's house. That was his donkey. And when they went to the upper room, that the upper room probably belonged to John Mark's family. Some of you might remember a funny moment in the crucifixion, if there can be. Jesus is in the garden, the Roman soldiers come, and it's recorded by Luke, I believe it's in Luke, that there was a young man who, got, who was grabbed by the police, and he ran out of his garment, and he ran home in his underwear. John Mark. Most, history has recorded that that was him, but Luke didn't give his name to save him the embarrassment of that. Now Luke will absolutely bury Peter, but he won't mention John Mark. I think everybody piles on Peter. But this is where you have this moment. It's also interesting that when you read the book of Acts, John Mark appears again. Paul and Barnabas were going on a trip and they had John Mark with them. And John Mark, in the middle of one of their journeys, for a reason that's not stated, he abandoned them. He panicked and left. It became so contentious that Paul and Barnabas split over it. Because Barnabas said, give him another chance. And Paul said, no, I don't trust him. So Paul went one direction, Barnabas went the other, and the beautiful part is, at the end of one of Paul's letters, I believe it's the pastoral epistles, when he's asking for someone to bring his coat and bring him some writing materials, Paul says, and send John Mark, for he's helpful to me. So we're like, ah, they became friends again. So even though you probably didn't know that, the guy who wrote this letter is all through the early church history. And there's even places, I think it's in India, if I remember correctly. When I was in India, someone showed us that it's supposed the grave site of John Mark, who probably went to India and was martyred there preaching the gospel. So that's who our author is. Now, quickly. He wrote another account of Jesus' life. He's simply telling the good news of the king. He focuses this primarily to the Romans, so he's writing it in Rome. And do you remember what the date is? Sometime in the mid to late 50s. Michael shared that with us a few weeks ago. Okay, your notes are there, but let's see if you remember. What is the distinction of Mark's gospel over Matthew's? 
What's the word that Mark uses repeatedly? Immediately, urgently, at that time. Mark is not giving us every sermon, every detail. Mark is doing the opposite. He is plowing ahead. The cross and the crown. Okay? The cross and the crown are the two things that Mark's after. He's going to show us that he's the king and he laid his crown down to go to the cross. That is the message of the gospel of Mark. Just simply. Mark's going to tell you the story in 20 minutes. Matthew's going to tell you in two hours. And that's the distinction. Mark wrote it earlier to get eyewitness evidence. And Matthew wrote later to talk about the kingdom. Okay, Gospel of Luke. Good news for the Greeks. What is it? It's another account of Jesus' life. So it's just another good news account of Jesus' life. And it was written in Caesarea. To spell Caesar with an EA on the end. And this is a pretty secure date. Somewhere between 58 and 60 AD it was written. Now the certainty of these dates is not nearly as important as some people want to make it out to be. But we're fairly sure that it happened before 62 AD because it's at that point in time that history records both Peter and Paul are dead. They'd been killed by then. And I don't know if you've thought much about that, but that's within a 30-year span of Jesus being executed, somewhere around 28 or 29 A.D., that within 30 years of that period of time, Peter and Paul have both been martyred for their faith. Most of the disciples are gone but John. And Luke records this. So Luke was a medical doctor, so you'll notice that Luke has a lot, he pays attention to different things than others do. He's writing by conscription. In other words, he was paid to do a historical background search on who Jesus was and why the church was effective. He wrote two volumes. He wrote them for a group or an individual named Theophilus. Theophilus means lovers of God. It could have been a group of very wealthy Greeks who said, write me a history. Give me the research on this. So he wrote on behalf of others and he did eyewitness research. You'll notice something unique about Luke. Luke has a lot of detail about Mary. In my study, discovered that they believe Mary was one of his primary sources. So, who tells the story of what Mary was thinking when the angel came and announced the birth? Luke does. Matthew doesn't. Mark doesn't. John doesn't. So, Luke probably sat with Mary and got the details. Who's the one, and this is what connects it for me, who's the one who recorded that Mary stored up all these things in her heart? Okay. Now, you moms do that by nature. God has equipped you with very significant memories on very insignificant things. I can say to my mom right now, four boys, three of us in the first five years, and I can say to my mom, how old was I when I lost my first tooth? And I promise you today, she can give me within a month of it. Say, mom, when did I first begin to speak? And she'll make a crack about immediately, and then she'll tell me exactly how old I was when I said something besides dad. Because she's still furious that all four boys started out with dad. And he did nothing but go to work and come home and play with us. But we'd come in and we'd go, Dad. And she's like, none of you said Mom first. Okay. But my mom has attention to detail. What does Luke say? Mary stored and treasured these things in her heart. So I think when Luke sat down with Mary, he said, so how was it? And she's like, blah. And he's like, slow down. That's amazing. You remember all of that. Well, of course, if an angel shows up one night in your room to a virgin and says, you're pregnant, you're going to remember details. You're going to remember what time it was, what the weather was like, and how in the heck you were going to get out of that mess. So this is what Luke was. 
Luke is the longest. Go under what's special about Luke. Luke is the longest of the Gospels written after he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Those are his words. Carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke was an educated man. Trained. I'm going to share a part of the story, and it's not going to come from Luke, it's going to come from Mark, but Luke records it as well, about the woman who reaches up when Jesus passes by and she touches the hem of his garment. Matthew says this woman who had been bleeding for a number of years, or excuse me, Mark says that. Luke says this woman's been bleeding for 12 years, and the doctors have tried everything to stop the bleeding and can't. A doctor would note that, wouldn't they? Mark just says she had a problem. Luke's like, no, she had a problem, and every trained person tried to help her and couldn't help her. Luke's attention to detail is significant. So if you really want to get the flavors of a moment in Jesus' life, see if it's recorded in Luke and splash around in that because there's a lot of detail. John. John wrote good news for all. He didn't have a specific audience. So he wrote the theological account of Jesus' deity. The theological account of Jesus' deity. And he was probably in Ephesus when he wrote this. And I'm going to give you an obscure date. But my resources will tell you if, if you wrote after 80 AD, you're safe. It happened sometime between 80 and 90 AD. Now, do you see the distance between the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the writings of John, right? What's, what's the gap? 25 to 30 years. So significant. That's why John's not re-recording what's already been recorded over and over and over. He's just choosing not to do that. Now, we know that John, in his own Gospels... Now, John wrote how many books in the New Testament? Five. Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So five of the New Testament books. The only person who wrote more was Peter, or was Paul. Okay? So you have John writing this. Now, does John ever self-identify in the Gospel of John? Does he ever say, I was there? Well, how does he refer to himself? Yeah, the one Jesus loved. Okay? He never says who he is in the story. Now, what's funny is, in earlier times, like when Matthew records it, Matthew loves to point out that James and John asked if they could have a special seat at the banquet. John doesn't say that. In fact, whenever John has a moment, all he simply says is, uh, the one Jesus loved was there. And I've shared this a few times, but I want, I, what I appreciate about John is, he's not boasting. Jesus loved me more than anybody else. He's actually doing the opposite. I'm just one of many Jesus loved. And so you can see the humility at the point in which uh, John writes this. And John's is not organized chronologically. That's why it's not included in the synoptics. He, he's, not, he's not trying to tell you, and then this happened, and this happened, and Mark is like, this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and John's like, no, 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 just let me tell you. He talked about things like this, and then he talked about things like this, and then he healed a guy, and then he died. He groups them together, because he's making a bigger point. So, highlights in John's gospel. In John 11 was the raising of Lazarus, where he healed Lazarus. And it silenced the uh, Sadducees. Let's see if we can remember from our week one. See if there's any retention. What was the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Sadducees didn't believe in what? 
Lazarus was a problem. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead, and it says immediately they plotted when they saw Lazarus, what was their solution? Kill both of them. Which really doesn't solve your problem. It just admits you were wrong, but you've hidden the evidence. So they decide then, and the Sadducees are in on that. John 13 through 16, Jesus' last teachings to the disciples. It's really crucially important, if I can overemphasize, that when you read 12 through 17, you need to, (laughs) this is hard, you need to read it in one setting because it happened in one moment. Those chapters are all the night when they were headed to to the garden. He knew betrayal was on its way. When you read that, you'll hear things like, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and where I go, there are many rooms in my father's house. And he starts talking like this. And finally, Thomas, who's the only guy who actually wants to ask the question, Thomas goes, we really don't know what you're talking about. Where are you going? And he says, I go to prepare. And if I, if I hadn't, I would have told you. We don't know where you're going. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'll get you there. And that starts in John 12 and all of a sudden, it, or John 14, and it starts building and building and building. And then in John 17, Jesus prays the prayer, the high priestly prayer. And he prays for them which is the last line. He prays for believers. His prayer is so honest. God, these guys don't get along. Unify them. Use them like you used me. Give them hope. Remind them they're not of this world. They're of my kingdom. So John's got some power. And of course, John was there. It's just amazing that John would write all of this. So we know what the four stories are about. Let's review some of the basics. And this is where you need to see the movie for the third or fourth time. And maybe my perspective on it or someone else's perspective might help deepen your understanding of the story. Let's talk about a way in a manger. I know you've never heard this story. (laughs) Jesus' birth. Who was in charge? What government was in charge when this happened? Okay. And so what's special about the story of Jesus' birth? First, Christ existed as God before he was born. This is a point of contention with our critics. When Jesus told the Pharisees that he existed before Abraham, we talked about this last week, they just, their minds were blown, they became angry, and they tried to hurt him. So he was in existence. He created the earth. We're told in Colossians and Ephesians that Jesus was the one who created the earth, that God gave him that, and he played that role. And the Holy Spirit empowered the world and was over it and led it. So there's some real deep theology found in John chapter 1 through 14. That first chapter, those first 14 verses, John is making a statement. He's gathering the data to say, this wasn't just a guy, this was God. Number two, Jesus' two genealogies prove biblically his lineage was from David. So it proved that his lineage came from King David. Why would that be important to the audience? because it was an Old Testament prophecy from the line of David. Someone of, one of David's sons would sit on the throne forever. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you read Matthew and Luke, both have genealogies. And if you're anything like me, you're so happy when you're reading through the, the Bible for a year comes on those, because what do we all do? Yeah, yeah, I can't pronounce half of them. I get a free day. I get to move on tomorrow. This is just one of those Sabbath days with Bible reading. It's like right now I'm reading in... Oh my goodness. I'm in Deuteronomy and I'm reading about the way the temple has to be. 
oh my gosh, I don't know what a cubit is. I don't know all of these terms, and it's got to be goat hair, and, and the curtains have got to be so many cubits, and they've got to be so thick, and, and there've got to be these ringlets on the table, and these poles made of acacia wood, and I have no clue what that means, but dutifully I run my eyes over all of it. Because it was attention to detail. And even though you and I may not understand it, it's not insignificant, because it was very significant to them that there was something that God asked them to do that represented something bigger than itself. But when you read the genealogies, you're going to notice that they record in their women. This didn't happen. Women were not mentioned in Jewish genealogies. And it's kind of funny because one of the women's a prostitute. One of the women's a foreigner. It's kind of embarrassing. It's like bringing out your, your crazy Uncle Larry in every conversation. <laughs> you know, most of our family's normal, but that guy's just the nutburger and he's family. So when they recorded the genealogies, they didn't hide the fact that Jesus came from a jacked up line. But one of them traces it all the way back to Adam and the other one traces it all the way back to David. And the point is made, as Clovis Chapel used to say, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. The genealogy would say, when they would look at the genealogy, it was always the polished people. You would jump from that crazy dude right to the cool guy. But they didn't. The genealogies proved that he came from David and it was a chain link that was weird. Yet God still brought Jesus. From the imperfection of humanity, God delivered his promise from Genesis 3.15. Number three, angelic visits were associated with this birth. I didn't know this until a few years ago. There are six angels appeared in the story of John the Baptist through the birth of Jesus. I mean, like six moments. I don't know how many. Sometimes it's plural. There could have been more than one angel. But that's significant. Well, uh, someone remind me, what's the job description of an angel? A messenger. And we have them with like, you know, these swords of lightning bolts knocking out the evil, and we have great battles going on. But truthfully, they were messenger. Angels show up, you better pay attention. New Testament, or in the Old Testament, every time an angel showed up, someone thought they were going to die. You just notice that. They think, oh, it's over. God sent the messenger down there to tell me I'm toast. So when we come in the presence of God, no one walks in the presence of God and goes, yo, big daddy. Biblically, every time you come in the presence of God, even demons, when Jesus walked in the presence of a demon without doing a thing to them, they all stopped what they were doing and realized he could take me out. The power of his glory. So when angels showed up, six of them did, as promised. Number four, Jesus' birth and childhood fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. We talked about this a little bit in week one. I've just given you a chart there that I stole from somebody that might help explain where it's from. Now I'm hoping at this point in time some of you are like, okay, I've, I've never really tried this. I don't understand the Bible completely, but if you understand the context, you could pick up any one of these Gospels now and begin to read about them. But if you start with Matthew and Luke, you're going to start right away with the birth. And you just say, well, everybody's born. No, no, this is more significant. The details that Matthew and Luke give us substantiate the Old Testament prophecies. So, for instance, he would be born of a virgin. That's found in the Old Testament, and where is it fulfilled? So I've just taken Matthew and showed you that you can look at these promises and find out for yourself if they're legitimate. You can go back and read the Old Testament text and do the comparison. If you've never done it, don't believe me. Some of you are like, I just don't even know where to start. Start there. Just for the next three or four days... 
read each one of these Old Testament prophecies, see where it happened in the New Testament, and do that for three or four days. Just build this knowledge in your heart that we're not making this up. This isn't a myth. It's not a fairy tale. Number five, witnesses confirm the identity of Jesus. And so I'm going to give you three witnesses from the Christmas story. Number one is Simeon. This was a man, and how cool would this be? If God said to to this guy, you're not going to die before you see the Messiah. Most of us would be on Jerry Springer, we'd be on CNN, we'd be all, we'd write in books, we'd be all, I have a t-shirt, hang with me, he's got, you know, I'm going to see him first. He, the guy didn't do it. He stayed serving in the temple, trusting that God's promise would be fulfilled. And I just wonder, to be honest with you, I wonder what he thought he would get. If God said to you, you're going to see him and you'll know it's him, before you die, my promise is going to be kept. How many of us would have assumed instantly it would have been an adult? And Mary and Joseph walk in with a baby eight days old. And he's got to look at this little olive raisin or something and go, really? I'm holding God in my hand. I would have expected an adult to walk in and power in a light beam coming out of his eyes and everything snapping to grid. Instead, they walk in with his baby. And Simeon, read his prayer. He gets a hold of the baby and he's like, oh, you're going to change the world with this kid. It's phenomenal. It's beautiful. It's one of the favorite parts of Christmas. And then there's a lady named Anna. Now, Anna must have gone to high school with God because she's old, old, old. She had a husband after I believe seven years of marriage he passed and she spent the rest of her life as a widow lady working in the temple and she didn't know she would see the Messiah but without Simeon telling her she walks in and she's like whoa that's him that's God how cool would that have been to be so overwhelmed by the presence of this helpless child that you just know God's faithful so here's the moral of this little sermonette that's for free If you think for a moment you know how God's going to do it, he is going to blow your mind. So we often pray to God and say, God, here's what I want to happen. I want it to happen in these three orders. And God's like, I have no interest in the way you want it done. Do you think I'm going to do it? Think about the guy who he spit in the mud and put mud on the guy's eyes. I mean, why did Jesus have to spit and make a mud ball? He didn't, but he did it for a reason. How come the one guy, he touches his eyes and the guy opens it and he says, it looks like, trees walking around and Jesus goes let me try again or maybe he didn't say that but he touches him again and his eyes go completely focused what's he doing there we'll talk about that in a moment but I want you to hold on to is Simeon and Anna knew that God had kept his promise but the way he brought the promise was in an eight day old kid and so here Simeon's like I can die now because I've seen the promise of Israel but I really haven't seen the promise completed does that make sense So sometimes we're going to die being discouraged because everything God promised, we didn't get to realize. But the book of Hebrews tells us, ah, but it's all going to come together. We see in part, but then we're going to see in full. Third are the wise men, or as Matthew calls them, the magi. And you guys have been around church, most of you enough to know these truths. They did not find baby Jesus. They, They found toddler Jesus. Because when Herod decided to kill the two-year-olds and under, that gives you the time frame by which 
they assumed the child had been born within the last two years. So all the males, two years and under in this region, were killed. Joseph escaped by God's uh, dream to go to Egypt to protect his family. And so the children under two were killed. So probably when the wise men found Joseph and Mary, he was a toddler. Now, I personally don't believe that when it says they followed the star, that it meant the star was above, you know, your little wicker basket that you hold your little fake Jesus and Mary in. It was a star that led them to a region, and they were astrologers. So they knew the region. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. They were so astute that when Herod called them in and said, what are you looking for? They went, nothing. And he said, well, when you find it, would you let me know? Sure, king. And as soon as they found the baby, they hijacked out of town. They're like, nah, we're not, that guy's going to hurt somebody. So there's a lot of this testimony of these. Notice, though, this old guy, this old woman, and these three foreigners. At, well, we don't know if there's three. We say the three wise men because they brought three gifts, but we don't know. There could have been 80 of them. But notice what God does to affirm. There's no breaking news. He just simply trusts people to spread the news. And off we go. Number six. Jesus lived and grew up as an ordinary child. Okay, I have a thousand questions. Did Mary ever have to spank Jesus? Did one-year-old Jesus not want to touch the stove? His dad was a carpenter. Did he ever go toward a sharp blade and Joseph have to correct him and pull him away two or three times and then reason with him and then swat his little behind and say, I told you no. Did Jesus ever get furious? Point his finger at his mom and say, no, you, no. Did he ever do that? Every kid does that, right? You tell him, no cookie, no cookie for you. <laughs> you, yes, already they get lippy. Every child does that. You don't have to teach a one-year-old to do that. Take something away, they'll smack you. And you're like, no, 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 don't hit mommy, don't hit daddy. Did Jesus ever act that way? Did Jesus ever want something they couldn't afford? Pitch a little fit. We talked about this last week, but I really want to be careful. I don't want to say Jesus was immoral, but was he human? Did he ever fight to go to bed? Did they ever strip him of his clothes to put him in the tub and he ran naked three blocks down because he was free? <laughs> did he ever do the thing every one of us did, if we're honest? You know, do you get that about your kids? You have to fight them to get them in the tub, and then you have to threaten their lives to get them out. Was Jesus that kind of kid? I, I don't know but he could have been. All I want to do is crack the door open when it says that he grew up as normal people did. He grew in stature and wisdom and in favor with God. He was a good boy. He was perfect. He never sinned. But I don't think losing your temper because you're one year old and you don't understand maturity yet, I don't think that's a sin. I think that's humanity. Did he ever stub his toe? And what did he say? I could go on for hours because I have a lot of time on my hands. So I want you to process this. He grew up like an ordinary kid. Don't turn him, remember our term, don't turn him into a spiritual robot who is only following orders. That's just not what the Bible teaches. It's the safest way to look at Jesus because you can control him that way. But I don't know that it's true. Jesus' baptism. We'll go by this briskly because we did this in the sermon series. And no, by no means did I realize when we designed this that it was going to fall a week after we talked about this. But what's special about Jesus' baptism? He was identified as the Son of God. God said, this is my beloved Son. Now, we have already incorporated the second line, and I'll give it to you now. After the baptism, Jesus was identified as the Messiah. 
And you're going to say, well, that's the same thing. No, it's not. His son and the Messiah, yes, same person, but distinct titles. Deity, humanity. Remember we talked about last week how that's important to allow him to be fully human yet fully God? When he was identified by God and by John the Baptist at his baptism, he was identified for his humanity and he was identified for his deity. Don't let those become one. When those start to bleed together, you get a really yucky color. You've got to let those colors stand out on their own. Jesus' temptation. Immediately, Mark says, Matthew in Matthew chapter 4 records this, that upon the completion of his baptism, remember the word the Holy Spirit did? He thrust him, he threw him, he picked him up and forced him to go into the wilderness. And that is the way God does things. That's why you come back from a big retreat and you're as high as a kite and two days later life punches you in the face and you think, ah, I don't know if any of that was real. How do you think Jesus felt going into the wilderness without food or water for 40 days right after God just said, this is my son, he's the Messiah, now go, suffer, struggle, do without. First of all, the first temptation was to satisfy himself. And, and we talked about this two weeks ago. I don't, I don't want to keep saying that, but I, I want to point out to draw memory to see the connection here. That the challenge for him was to end his suffering, not to sin. But for Jesus to have ended his suffering, it would have been a sin. Because Jesus had the power to fix what ailed him. He could have called, he could have called any bird from the sky and that bird would have come down and would have been ample food and supply. He could have done any of that. But he didn't. So the temptation was to satisfy himself. The second temptation was to test God. Now, I know none of us test God. That was sarcastic. Okay? If God really loved me, he would... What flows into that blank? Don't tell me. Just process. Have you had those conversations with God? I have prayed about this for 11 years. And if God really valued prayer and he valued me, he would have answered this. You go tell Anna and Simeon that 11 years is unreasonable. You tell David, who was anointed by God as king at the age of roughly 16 to 18. Does anybody know how long it took for David to receive the throne he was promised? 22 years. How long was uh, Moses serving his father-in-law before God called him to free the people? 40 years. You're going to find the number 40 over and over and over. In the Old Testament, the number 40 stands for a generation. So the hardest lesson for me because of my impatience, and this might include 12, 13% of you too, is when we say things like, if God really loved me, he would fill in your blank. That's a dangerous game to play. Because we've assumed that God's here to serve us rather than us to serve God no matter the circumstance. And this is what Satan said to Jesus. You know God will catch you. Show everybody. Show everybody that God's here for you. That's a really interesting seduction. 
because we know that Jesus said, yeah, I could jump off this, and angels would catch me before the ground, everybody would ooh and ah, and I would have defied my father's wishes for me. I would have done what I wanted, what made me look good, instead of trusting. The third temptation is to establish a personal rule. This is found in Matthew 4, 8 through 11. To establish a personal rule. Now you get this. Draw attention to yourself. Make it about you. Just turn all of this into your preference. And we've all done that. We've all done it to the church. I like it this way. I don't like it this way. If they don't do it this way, I'll go over here. All of us have that tendency. I think all of us have, as my uh, grandfather used to say, all of us have a two-year-old living inside of us that's still crying for attention. All of the time. I'll come home, and my beautiful wife will have made dinner. And we seldom eat as a family just by the nature of our lives and how busy it is. My mom used to always, oh, you know, we used to sit down and have family dinner. Okay, mom, thanks. I remember I was there. I got grounded for not showing up on time, remember? But I look at our lifestyle today, good, bad, or indifferent. It's just not the same. And so we have a meal together, and I still come home, and she will have made a wonderful dinner, and because I don't want it that day, I didn't want that. I cop an attitude. I know I'm the only guy in the room that does that. I come, now praise the Lord, she's never served me peas. Because then I'd have justifiable right to tip over the tables and cleanse the temple. That would just be biblical. But I'll come in and she'll say, hey, I made this. And I look and I go, yeah, but selfishly, deep down inside, I'm like, oh, dang it. I wanted that. Which I know the solution to having that is what? Cook it myself. But no, no, that's, that's out of the question. <laughs> I am here to be served. And where does that two-year-old come from? It comes from, Paul said, the nature inside of every one of us to make this about us. Now, let me ask you this question. Now that we've kind of fantasized about the temptations a bit, do you think Jesus wanted to make it about himself? I think he did. He was suffering. 40 days, no food or water. And I love that Matthew records, and after 40 days he was hungry. Really? Okay, I know I'm not Sherlock Holmes here, but I would have figured that one out on my own. 40 minutes and I'm hungry. So the selfishness, the desire to, to be noticed, the desire to get an attaboy or an girl for someone to pay attention to you. John, in 1 John, I believe it's chapter 5, he says that there are three sins that challenge us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay? Those are what every sin you can imagine falls under one of those three titles. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That'll make me feel good. That'll make me look good. Notice every sin. I used to play this game with uh, college kids. We'd sit down on these spiritual retreats and I'd say, okay, tell me in these areas what you struggle with. And they're all like, oh no, you know, this is like Shakespearean. Lust of the flesh. I don't worry about that. Really? You talk to the guys, how many of you have computer issues? Oh yeah. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes pride of life. I want people to think of me. I want people to talk about me. I want people to notice me. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting people to appreciate you. Please don't misunderstand that. It's not a sin to, ha- to, to, to do a, a good thing and have someone go, thank you. That's why you do it, because you want it to be a blessing. But if you take the three temptations that Satan put Jesus through in Matthew 4 and in Mark chapter 1, you're going to find they fall under these three categories. Do you want to feel good? Do you want to look good? And you want people to think well of you? You just put them together and they're right there. So, the temptation to satisfy, to test God, to establish a personal rule, 
And Jesus used the power of Scripture, his trust in Scripture. That's what he used to withstand each temptation. I heard an excellent lecture on this this week, so my tail's wagging. Notice, Satan used Scripture too. Right? Every one of these, Satan used the promise of God to Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, he didn't one-up him. He said, yeah, but the word of God also says. So here's the challenge with this. Understanding the Bible helps you interpret the Bible. Reading the Bible and knowing what it teaches helps you interpret it. Okay? People come back and say, well, if Christians really believe the scriptures, our president said this. Okay? President Obama, this is not political, he said this. Well, which parts of the Bible do you want to use? When he was questioned about some of his choices. He said, which part of the Bible that says you can't eat shellfish? The Bible that says wipe out a nation? Or the Bible that says turn your other cheek? It's a pretty compelling argument, isn't it? Okay? So people say to you, according to the Old Testament, if you really love God, you shouldn't eat bacon. That would be horrible. Any other? It would. It would. It would test a lot of our faith. Just teasing. Is there any other teaching in the Bible that would tell you that that strict adherence to that is, is no longer effectual or needed? Have you ever been thirsty on a hike? If you want to take one passage of the Bible and not correspond it to all other passages, wouldn't you think that all you have to do is take a stick, pray a prayer, and hit the rock and water will come? It happened before, then why can't you have what Moses had? So I love the passage in Acts chapter 9 where Peter has a dream about a blanket coming down full of a plate of bacon. And God says, take and eat. And Peter says, I've never done anything to break your law. And God says, don't tell me when I offer you something that it's unclean when I've made it clean. Thank you, bacon. But if you don't know the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you don't understand that the Bible is one story about God saving his people and creating holiness within them, then you can take these passages of Scripture and you can use them to beat people to death with legalism and fear instead of grace and love. That's why we want you to know what's in the Bible. So that when Satan comes to you and says, you're not good enough, and you go, oh my gosh, you're right. I lie, I cheat, I steal, I sin, I have bad attitude, I get mad at good people trying to be helpful. I have all these issues. You're right, I'm horrible. You can turn around and say, yes, but I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But if you don't understand the whole storyline and what's being done here, I could take passages of Scripture and ruin this room. I could create such a legalistic, tight, narrow definition of what a believer is that none of us would match up and we'd all slink out of here and quit. And unfortunately, American religion does that quite a bit. Controls people by fear instead of releases them to the loving grace of Scripture. Now, just because there's loving grace in the New Testament doesn't mean the standards of morality and ethics and all of that. There's, there's things in the Old Testament that still stand the test of time. Don't move a landmark stone and take someone else's land as your own. Don't. Those stones are there for a reason and find out why they're there for a reason. Does that sound like an ethical approach? You, you don't rip off other people's property. You don't take advantage of somebody. You, you take care of what is yours and you expect God to meet the rest. That's the principle that lasts forever. So in this passage, Jesus responded with, yes, the Bible does say that, but it also says this. And Satan knew. He knows with us if he can get us to believe a part of the Bible instead of the whole narrative of the Bible, he can control us with guilt and shame and take away our joy. 
And then the church becomes a duty. Christianity becomes an obligation. We become embittered. At the end of our lives, we, ask, we say things like, I don't know if I died today, if I'd go to heaven. Is Jesus a liar? Or did he tell you, I came to set you free? And if I go to prepare a place for you, that's the Jesus I, I dig. But he also says to me, Mark, you're living in a new kingdom. You're living in a new day. So get yourself in one of the Gospels. If you're not reading the Bible right now, get yourself in one of the Gospels. Process a chapter a day. And when you've read through Mark, 16 chapters will take you 16 days. Go back and do it again. Then go to Matthew, 28 chapters. Take you one month to read through Matthew, chapter a day. Go back, hit it again. Remember, we want you to fall in love with Jesus, not the facts about him. Spend some time pondering who this guy was, why he went through what he went through, and why are they telling us all of these important things about him. See, I talked so long that my iPad got tired. So we're done with lesson three. Lesson four, we're going to start breaking into a little bit more of the gospel. And then in lessons five and six, we're going to talk about the book of Acts and some of the early letters written to the early churches. What do they stand for? What are the key passages? What do you need to remember when you open yourself up to it? Any questions or comments before we're dismissed? Covered everything perfectly? Just as I thought. All right, thanks. You guys are dismissed. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.